So tonight I want to uh, complete our look at uh, lesson number nine, which I've entitled Conduct in the Christian Household. And we um, are looking at the section from 3.18 to 4.1. As I pointed out last week, the fourth chapter really ought to begin in verse 2. But um, nonetheless, here, here we are. All right, so let's, uh, let's just take a moment to step back from Colossians for a moment and think about the totality of the book, right? Paul is inclined in his epistles to start with an indicative section of his letter where he gives certain truths. Uh, we call them doctrines, I guess would be another word to use, but they're truths. They're certain things that he wants to impress upon his audience, uh, and then he will build on those as he goes. So Paul believes that doctrine, truth, uh, is capable of producing the groundwork, the foundation that you need for uh, the imperative section of the book which follows. He believes that it's possible to take Christian doctrine and use it in a sense of, of uh, where it's foundational. Okay? He's not he, he's, he's inclined to do that. He's not inclined to say, well, you know, the Christian doesn't need to know doctrine. He just needs to get some practical advice. Uh, Paul always begins theologically. He always begins doctrinally because he knows that any pragmatics that are to follow that must flow out of those truths. As we've said many times, I repeat this many times, the Christian faith is built on objective truths. It's built on realities that come out of time and space. God is revealed in his word that which is true and so what is true is where you got to start so paul does that he starts this letter uh, by speaking of what he considers to be the most significant truth that he wants to convey to the colossians you see it in chapter one starting in verse 15 going basically to 20 you could say all the way to 23 he his primary indicative is that christ the son is, has, I should say, come in the flesh. That the, that the Son of God is Jesus in the flesh. So here, he, 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 he makes it clear that this one who we call Jesus, this one who was a carpenter from Nazareth that was crucified, this one is the Son of God, the, what he calls the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. He is not just a man who was uniquely glorified or special in some way. He's not just some prophet or seer or whatever. He's the very essence of God that has come into the world. Okay, And he builds what he's going to say in this letter upon that truth. I call, I've called it a number of times the primary indicative of the book. There are other truths, but this is the primary indicative that Christ has come in the flesh. And so he's He's building this principle into them to say, listen, you need to understand the way that the Christian is to think and the way the Christian is to act is based on that foundational truth. So you see fingerprints of that indicative running through the rest of the letter. A number of times I've asked you over the course of the letter, how does this particular thing fit with that primary indicative? Because you see this sense in which it's not far from Paul's mind that when he says this or that, he's thinking about this reality that God 
has entered into the world. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has come to make God known by being born into the world as a man. And so everything else flows out of that. So when we turn our attention to the indicative, I'm sorry, the imperative section of the letter, which some say starts in 2.6, some say starts in 3.1, no matter where you start it, wherever Paul gets to that point where he starts making application, imperatives being commands, when he starts giving commands, he's thinking about that indicative. He's thinking, here's the reason why you should obey this, because Christ has come in the flesh. So he's, he's writing to a church, you remember, that he's never been to. We, don't, we suspect he was never there. A man by the name of Epaphras had come to Paul at some point, probably while he's in Rome, to tell him about the church at Colossae and to tell him of some of the issues that are going on. The particular issue we think we see in chapter 2 near the end of the chapter where he talks about people who are in the church and they are imposing rules and regulations and legalities and so forth upon the people in there. Even the potential, you remember, of some individual, some person who is putting forth this asceticism and worship of angels and visions and these sorts of things that he wants the Christians to embrace and do. And Paul is thinking in the back of his mind, don't go there. Because that man's not the head of the church. The head of the church is the one who came from the Father's side and who himself established the church. The one who is the Son of God in flesh. So don't listen to him. Okay. So you see that as you roll into chapter 3. Chapter 3, remember, Paul has a lengthy discussion. In fact, everything from 3.1 to where we are now is a lengthy discussion by the Apostle Paul of the fact that the Christian is to put on what Paul calls the new self the new outward nature that corresponds with being a part of the one who came to establish the church. So he speaks of this reality when he says in 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, so you, you don't see what he did there. He connects that to the one who came in the flesh. And he says, this one has come and he has been raised. And so if you have been raised with him, that's not an if in the sense of maybe you have, maybe you haven't. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a statement of you have, and since you have, then here's what you are to do. You are to put on this new self. You are to put on this new nature as the one who belongs to Christ. You are to set your mind on things that are above, and on the negative side of the equation, you are to put to death those things in you that are earthly, the earthly passions of immorality and impurity and, and so forth, you to put those things aside. Again, not far from his thinking about the one who came, right? Because the one who came, he didn't have these characteristics in himself. He was pure and holy. He didn't have to worry about sexual immorality and passions of the flesh and so forth because he didn't have those. So Paul's imperative is built on just as he is, so you are to be as well. So put these things on, put on this new nature. So on the negative side, put to death these kinds of evil thoughts and on, or evil actions. And then on the other side, put on certain characteristics that are specific to him as well. Things like humility, kindness, and having compassionate hearts, and patience, and bearing with one another, and forgiveness, all these kinds of things. Put these things on. 
So you see in chapter 3 up until this point, we've seen two different ways that Paul addresses this indicative. Christ has come. You've been included in it. Okay, stop thinking about this guy that's come to your church and trying to tell you what it means to be a Christian. He hasn't got a clue. Here's what you do. Being a Christian is to mortify all of these things that are contrary to his nature and then put on all of these things that are consistent with his nature. Do those two things. Because he has come down from his father's side, because he has entered into the world, because he has, he has taken on his role in flesh to make atonement through the cross and be raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father has now established the church and you have been included in it by the Spirit of God. Okay, here's what you do. Put away that guy and put on Christ. See, because this, this religious shaman, this Jewish shaman guy, he's not interested in you imitating him in the sense of imitating Christ. He's only interested in you imitating him so that he maintains power. Christ wants you to imitate him because it's what he came to accomplish. It's what he came to do. So put on this new self. Put off immorality. Put on holiness. Robe yourself. I would say it even more simply than that if I could. It would go like this. Just as you are holy, righteous, and pure in the sight of God by virtue of your faith, live like that on the outside. It's really that simple. If God has declared you to be holy and righteous by faith in his Son, the one who came, then live on the outside like that's true. Right? Makes sense. If if what we were before was rebels against God and by our nature under the wrath of God, it's reasonable that we would act according to that. It's also reasonable to assume that if we've been born again by the Spirit of God, drawn to Christ, connected to him, that we would live outwardly like that see because what we are is what we do and so here we are so paul says so paul gives this great indicative put on the new self don't worry so much about religious practices and asceticisms and you know and and, and all these kinds of things because they're they're phony they're false they don't get you to holiness holiness is put on christ put on his nature Put off what's contrary to his nature. Put on what is right to his nature. And then in verse 17, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he pretty much summarizes this entire section by saying, Listen, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it all as those who have been named by him. You carry his name, act like him, think like him, imitate him in all that you do. And as you're doing that, give thanks to God the Father through him. So a life of gratitude for all that we have received, which flows out of our way of living, okay? In in the very simplest sense, guys, we're talking about a command by Paul to discipleship. To become fully conformed and devoted followers of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus does not call us to faith in himself and then turn us loose to just go live in the world. But too many churches that teach that, right? Just come to the church, pray the prayer, okay, now you're good, now just you know try to be as good as you can when you live out there. No. 
the call of Christ, the call of the Apostle Paul in his letters, and it's nowhere more obvious than here, is a radical transformation that takes place amongst those who belong to Christ. It's a radical transformation. If faith is a radical trust in the promise of God, then discipleship is a radical transformation of what we are in him. Nothing less is expected. Nothing less is expected. And so those who have been truly born again, those who know this one who has come from the Father, their desire should be to follow him and imitate him, obey him, put our lives in his hands because he is Lord, right? Okay? So the first part of this chapter is pretty simple. Extraordinarily difficult to do, but very simple to understand. Put off, put on. Put off what is old, put on what is new. Which leads us then to where we are tonight. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, etc. Now, at first glance, you might pause here and go, isn't Paul kind of throwing the transmission out of gear here to shift here? He almost seems like he's shifting so far away from what he was talking about. Because here he's talking about put on the new self, put off the old, and so forth. And then he starts talking about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives and so forth. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that Paul puts this here, I think, because he's making what we would call a precise imperative. Okay, there's a difference between a generic imperative and a precise imperative. A generic imperative is, this is what is generally required of Christians in a general sense. I mean, you and I both know that it's going, we're, we're going to have to determine through the course of our circumstances how we're going to be compassionate and forgiving and so forth, because that's all going to vary from moment to moment, isn't it? It's, it's going to be very circumstantial how we're going to do that. Your experience, my experience are going to be very different. We call that a general imperative. But a specific or particular imperative, where Paul goes now, drives that thought down into something specific. You might almost say, many ways, we say, this is like an example of what Paul wants. But it's not just an example. It's also a set of imperatives. You'll notice that this is stronger imperatives. The word submit, the word love, the word obey, the word do not provoke, the word obey, etc., Treat your bond service. Those are all words, verbs, in the imperative form. So they're very clearly imperative form. But you will notice that they're specifically driven to certain individuals. So now they're not just general principles anymore. They become very specific principles. So now Paul turns his attention in verse 18, for example, and he says, okay, every one of you that's a wife in this congregation, here's what I'm saying to you. And then he says, Okay, every one of you that's a husband, okay? So you'll see he's not being just general anymore. Now he's driving his imperatives to, this, to specific things. If you want to call them examples, I'm fine with that. But I think in a general sense, to understand the Apostle Paul, you understand that he does at times, quite often in fact in his letters, drive specific, he drives from general imperatives to specific ones quite often. You see it, for example, in, when he's writing to Timothy. He tells Timothy to do the work of a minister, and then he specifically drives home. Preach the word. See, he, he takes a general idea of what it means to shepherd a congregation and drives it down to something specific. And I could give you other examples 
Uh, Romans has good examples, for example, has good examples, comma, for example, in 13 and 14 and 15, coming out of the theological section of the letter, he comes in and says, okay, here's your relationship to government. Here's your relationship to one another as brothers in dealing with matters of liberty and so forth. He takes generalized imperatives and converts them into specific ones very often. Now, he runs the risk of missing some people, right? But not in this case, as it turns out. He's going to hit the vast majority of people in these in this, all right? So what you're looking at in this section is a set of particular imperatives built on the imperatives that came and the indicative established at the beginning of the book. So once again, don't lose track of the fact that when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting the Lord, he's thinking about this in terms of the Son of God coming as a man. It's not far from his mind. Okay? Now, another thing to consider here. In a few of these cases, Paul does not give much by way of instruction. He just puts an imperative and sort of leaves it there. He leaves a lot of room for discussion as to what it means. In this particular letter, but as I pointed out a couple of times, this letter is probably... Uh, supplemented by the letter we call Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians is actually an encyclical letter written to the churches around the seven churches of the Revelation, around Ephesus and the other six churches that are mentioned at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Those churches were all located geographically close to one another. Colossae is not listed amongst them, but it was geographically close enough that this encyclical would have undoubtedly gotten to Colossae. In fact, at chapter 4, you'll see in, next lesson, in the next lesson that he makes mention of a letter from Laodicea. It's probably the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, we know that Ephesians is probably an encyclical because the vast majority of the manuscripts we have of that letter do not have the phrase to the Ephesians at the front of it. Only a few copies do. So we call it to the Ephesians because we have that stamp on some, but Many copies of that were made that were sent around to those churches. It is highly likely that Paul said, or you could almost see Paul put a footnote here and say, see my letter to the Ephesians for more details on this subject. Okay, So it's highly likely that Paul's very short instructions to some in this list, at least to wives, husbands, children, and masters, the very short list is saying, go look at Ephesians. But let me also suggest that Paul probably doesn't get into too much detail here because he's already made his point. His point is, if you are a follower of Christ, then put on his nature. I mean, that's what we just saw, right, as the general imperative before that. So his basic point is, look, if you are a Christian, then act like one. If you are a Christian, then look at Christ and ask yourself, in the role that you have, what would be your best response to imitate him? And so he doesn't really put a great deal of detail here because he says that should be fairly obvious to you. It should be fairly obvious based on what we've already seen up above. So it is likely that this set of particular imperatives is included here under the assumption that we understand it. But one more point I will make here. It seems obvious, doesn't it, 
if this letter is accompanied by the letter uh, to the Ephesians, that this, these issues made up and re reviewed here are on his mind. Very much on his mind. He's thinking about these things. Now, consider that for a second. Where's Paul at when he writes this letter? He's in a Roman prison. I mean, he's probably under house arrest there in Rome. Got a soldier, probably, strapped to his ankle 24 hours a day. There he is under house arrest. So he's in Rome. He has friends coming in and out to see him, obviously. We'll see that in the next chapter. So he's, he's got a lot of things on his mind of things that are going on. Undoubtedly, he's concerned about where the gospel is going throughout the world, you know, who's going where with this gospel. So here comes Epaphras into the church to talk to him, I mean, into his, into his home to tell him about this church. Here in Colossae, he's got a lot of other people that he has spoken to. You'll, you'll work through all those in the next lesson. But notice, in the midst of all that, twice over in these two letters, he's, he's concerned about wives, husbands, children, fathers, masters, and slaves. Isn't that interesting? He has that on his mind. And I have reason, as I've thought that out over the years, asking, why would that be? I think the answer to me is, this is, in many ways, this is where, in a church, the rubber hits the road. This is, I mean, if you really want to talk to a church, okay, how do you deal with the people in the church? Well, you basically got six different categories in the church. You've got men who are husbands, you've got women who are wives, you've got children, you've got fathers, you've got bond servants, and you've got masters in the church. Okay, first century church. So, so there, you're looking out at a congregation of people. You've got that broad spectrum. Sure, there might be a few single women mixed in there, a few single men mixed in there, right? Okay. But most everybody is going to fall into one of these categories. And so to address this, as he does, is basically to write a letter to the church and say, look, I'm talking to all of you, wherever your status is, whatever your state is. Here's where I want to talk to you specifically. See? So he's, as I said, he moves from the general to the particular in order to address basically everybody specifically. So nobody's going to be able to walk out and go, well, that didn't apply to me. No, everybody's going to walk out and say, yep, yep, putting on that new self. Okay, I see what he means. I understand where he's going. So, Paul writes these, these specific uh, particular imperatives, six of them, and you will notice the pattern. Paul is a tremendous rhetorician. If you've, if you've read Romans, you know that's true. If you've read Ephesians, you know that's true. It's a strongly written uh, theological tome. It rivals um, Romans on many levels. Paul, as a rhetorician, is thinking, okay, what would be the best way to take this on? And what he does is he says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to address six different types of individuals or six different roles in the church. Okay? And each of those roles I'm going to address as pairs. So I'm going to, I'm going to have three different pairs, six total, three pairs. And then in each pair, I'm going to start with the role that's the submissive or lesser, I don't mean that in terms of value, but in terms of role 
position. Start with the lesser first and then speak to the greater secondly. So he starts with wives and husbands to follow. Okay, so he takes the, the lesser and greater roles. And then he takes children and fathers, the lesser and greater roles. And then he takes servants, slaves, and masters, the, greater, uh, the lesser and greater roles. So he takes them in reverse order. I suspect most of us would write this backwards. We would start with husbands and then speak to wives after that. But Paul starts with wives and speaks to them and then speaks to husbands behind that. He does the same thing with children. He does the same thing with slaves. So as he puts this together, he also has a general order. These are all positions in a household. Now notice I called it the Christian household. I did steal that title from the top of the title over the ESV. Okay, I stole it. I realize that. But this is representative of two different households, two different Christian households. The one Christian household is the one you think of almost automatically, right? Which is a husband and a wife with their children and their servants. The family, the nuclear family household. But there's another. What's the other one? Well, the other one is the church. The other one is the church itself. She is also a family relationship. You think about the family intimations in the New Testament of the church being a family, where we talk about God as our father and we are his sons and daughters. What does that make us? That makes us a family, right? Because a father with sons and daughters is a a family. So he's not just writing to the household family. He's also writing to the church as a family with all those different groups a part of it. Because all of us will come with our various roles into the body. And we will bring those roles with us as we come. What is interesting is that there are a couple of roles in here potentially that are repeated. You can be a husband and a father and a master. Right? You can be a husband, a father, and a master. Technically, you can be a wife and a mother, which I think the implication of fathers, verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children, probably also implies for mothers as well, one would assume. But Paul doesn't go there. He speaks specifically to fathers. We'll get to that in a second. So, there's some overlap here. So look, if you're a man who is a husband and a father and you have servants, then you're getting three bits of advice, not just one. You're getting three times the imperative. The wife can just go, okay, you just talk to me once. Children go, yep, just talk to me once. The slave could say, oh, just talk to me once. But the father is instructed as a husband and a father and a master, potentially. Because that's how it would look, right? Okay, so those are the details of this pericope that Paul puts before us. And he starts with, as I said, the lesser of the greatest relationship in the household. So he starts with the greatest relationship in the household, which is the father, I'm sorry, the the husband and the wife. And he starts with the wife. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now the phrase, excuse me, as it is fitting in the Lord should be fairly obvious from what we've just spent two lessons dealing with on the new self, right? 
How is it fitting in the Lord for a wife to be submissive to her husband? Well, she's to put off her worldly ways, and she's to put on godly ways. So if we, if we simply rewind back to the beginning of chapter 3, all right, so the wife is to set her mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, just as Christ set his mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. See? So the idea of submission as is fitting is fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? Now, Paul does give a bit more to that. He writes more to it in the sense, uh, in Ephesians 5, I mean, uh, because he recognizes that, okay, let's make sure you understand that this word submission assumes two things. It assumes a willingness to give control over to another. Okay, so it assumes that you are willing to give over uh, your um, control in matters large and small and to recognize that the that God has given her husband the responsibility to lead the home. Now, you know, I talk like this and I sound like a, a complete, uh, what's the word that used today in our society? It sounds like a complete uh, male chauvinist pig in our day. Well, that was the 70s, names were male chauvinist pig. Today we're called misogynists, you know. That's what we sound like, right? But, but Paul doesn't, care about that he's writing this and the lord gives it to us through time by his providence because as we pointed out when we studied through masculine christianity that god has established gender roles in the world and they are good and they're good i actually heard one of my favorite congresswomen aoc is her initials she went on some talk show, some, some it was interviewed in some place, and she said, well, these people, these Christians, they just want some sort of patriarchal, what was the other word she used? I forget. But the, the word patriarchy stuck out at me. And I went, yeah, we do. Thanks for noticing. I appreciate you noticing. But you, you will see, you see what's happened, you see. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but why is this all over the place in our culture now? Why is Christian nationalism and the idea of a patriarchy, and why is it blossoming all of a sudden? Is it maybe because our culture is beginning to realize that that is actually the Christian position that's always been the Christian position? It's been denied by too much of Christianity itself for a very long time, and now all of a sudden, a few reform guys start talking about restoring gender roles, and you might as well have just lit a stick of dynamite and throw it into Congress, right? There is order, and Paul recognizes it. He doesn't attempt to defend it. He doesn't attempt to say to them, well, you know, submit to your, you know, submit to your husbands because, you know, it's it's a good thing for you to do, and it, you know, you'll 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 find you're you're much more um, you know, you have much more enjoyment in life. No, he just says, as, it, it's, as it's fitting in the Lord. Under the assumption that Christ himself submitted himself to the Father when he came to do a work, he was the most submissive human that ever lived, submitting himself not only to the obedient, of his obedience to his Father, but also submitting himself to the wickedness of men, doing both. So, wives, submit yourself to your husband. That's a command of the Lord. 
not really open for debate. I think our complementarian friends have missed this point. It's one of Zachary Garris's main points in his book. The complementarianism wants to skirt that reality by shoving it just in the church. But it belongs in the home as well. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I saw an article that was talking about a woman who was complaining. She had written an article complaining that her daughter had decided to become a stay-at-home mother. Even though she herself was a stay-at-home mother. Homemaker, I think. Stay-at-home something. It had an acronym, which I thought was cute. But okay. But anyways, the point is, is that she had been watching TikTok videos of, what do they call them now? Trad wives? Trad wives. Traditional wives who stay at home and take care of the home and raise children and homeschool and, you know, plant gardens and do all these wonderful things that women can do and have great amounts of fulfillment. But she was complaining about the fact that her daughter was going to pursue that role even though she had. Because it's like, no, 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 she needs to break out of this stereotype. She needs to go and be a part of the, you know, the, the, the way the world works. And basically what the mom was saying is, yeah, she needs to go and be a man. Fundamentally. Paul says, very simply, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Just as Christ is the head of the church, just as Christ is the head of his family, so you are not. Wives, you are not. Submit to the one who has been given that authority. Which leads, obviously, to verse 19. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, again... Paul only gives that one statement. Again, I say he would probably write a footnote here and say, see Ephesians for my fuller description of what it means to be a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and so on, right? And he uses the word harsh here, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And the word harsh in this context is probably simply to mean that Christian husbands are not to treat their wives with a dictatorial attitude, which would be precisely what he says in Ephesians 5, right? Love your wives in a self-sacrificial way, not as a dictator, but as one who puts her needs above your own. He puts her value above your own, providing for her, protecting her, guiding her, all these things that you are to do. So harsh, I think, is simply another way of saying be the kind of self-sacrificial husband that God would have you to be because that's what Christ was. That's what he did as he gave himself for the church. So a husband should give himself for his wife. Paul makes that very clear, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 5. To be harsh would be, in Paul's estimation, a complete violation of the attributes of the new self as noted earlier, right? A dictator is not going to be someone who is full of compassion, kindness, humility, patience. A harsh husband would be an attitude that would imply a lack of peace because what would he be bringing to his house all the time? Trouble. He would be bringing strife into the relationship by asserting some sort of dominance over his wife rather than a loving leadership characterized by a strong sense of patience and love. So Paul doesn't elaborate here, but we don't really need him to because we've just read some 16 verses, 17 verses prior to this, in which he said, here's what you do, men. Put off that old nature. The old worldly nature is, I'm in charge around here. 
the new self says, oh, no. I'm going to lead my wife. I'm going to protect my wife. I'm going to guide my wife, but I'm going to do it as Christ did, self-sacrificially. I'm going to put on the new self. So he doesn't really need to elaborate, even though he does, as I said, in Ephesians 5. So he, he gives very clear indications to the husbands and the wives in the church. Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting. In many ways, you could make the argument in ver- that verse 19 if you extend it out from the nuclear family, meaning the household family, into the church, in some ways you could make a very good argument, an exceptionally good argument, that when Paul speaks to husbands in this verse, he's also speaking to the heads of the church. He's speaking to elders as well. He's speaking to elders and saying to them, do not be harsh, love your people, and do not be harsh with them. Treat them with that self-sacrificial love that Christ had as you do the work that you have been set to do. Yes, sometimes you have to correct, but you do it lovingly. Sometimes you have to exhort. Sometimes you have to rebuke. Sometimes you have to discipline, right? All those things are an essential part of what it means to be the leader of a home. Therefore, it would also be true in the church. So I would take verse 19, not only in my role as a husband, but I would also take it in my role as an elder to see this responsibility. So Paul begins with wives and husbands first, and then he turns his attention to the next layer down in the home, children and fathers. Okay, So he starts up here at the most important relationship in the house, and then he moves down to the second layer where he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children are commanded by the Apostle Paul to obey their parents in everything. Now, what that means is submission, doesn't it? Submit to the will of your parents. Submit to the leadership and authority of your parents even when you may disagree with them. Right? Even when you might disagree with them. This is both spiritual and physical obedience. Obviously, it's physical obedience in doing or not doing what compares command, but it's spiritual in, also in letting parents, allowing parents to raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, fa- so, so children are to obey their parents. Now this goes back to the law. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. It goes back to the Decalogue. Right? Honor your father and your mother. Who is that written to? It's written to children, isn't it? It's written to those who have parents. Who has parents? Well, everybody who's a child of someone else. Now, true, it applies to us as adults with our older adults, but it certainly applies to younger children with their parents. So basically, anybody who has a parent is to honor their father and their mother. So Paul is simply taking something out of the law, and he's applying it into the lives of children in the congregation in terms of the relationship with their parents. Obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Why does it please the Lord? Because it's a law, because it's a part of the very nature of God himself established in the Decalogue. Honor your parents. Do not be rebellious against your parents. And why not? Because the Christian is no longer rebellious. The Christian has come to terms with God, right? 
I mean, if I had to pick one of the characteristics out of the new self we listed up above, I would pick the one about let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Verse 15. That the child should let the peace of Christ rule in his heart, in his relationship to his parents. Now, it doesn't always do that, right? But for those who have been born again, which is the assumption of this section, isn't it? Paul's writing to Christians here. He's saying, listen, if you are the child of a parent, then you have a responsibility to submit yourself to the authority of that parent. You may not always like it, and your parents may not always do perfectly what they're supposed to do as parents, obviously, but you are to honor them. You know, unless they tell you to break the law or unless they tell you to rebel against God in some way, your responsibility is to follow them. So do this out of the very sense of what it means to put on the new self. Put off the old nature of rebellion and put on the new nature of submission. You're probably thinking to yourself, those of you who have young kids, yeah, I'm waiting for that day. Right? But that's okay. Then he says in verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I think this is an interesting way to put this. Do not provoke your children. That word provoke is basically to the idea of putting undue pressure upon them or exceptional pressure upon them. It's the idea of demanding a sense of something from them that they simply cannot achieve. So it's setting the bar way too high, in other words. Demanding some sort of allegiance or perfection or performance, which is simply unnecessary. It's an exceptional pressure. Now, all fathers put pressure on their children, by definition, right? All of us have to, all of us have to provoke, in a sense, our children. Because what we're doing as parents is we're urging them to grow up, right? That's what you're doing. You're disciplining them, you're guiding them, you're correcting them, you're encouraging them when they do well, all to get them to the place where they become adults. Now, again, in this culture, that's missing somehow. It's not there anymore. It's like, you know, your 28-year-old son still living in your basement, hasn't gotten a job ever, hasn't shown himself to be any sort of a... And, and people think that's normal. You know, people think that's fine. No, it's not. The goal of adult, the, the goal of parenthood is the child to become an adult and go live for himself, right? To make, to, to make his way in her own. Now, that doesn't mean that we as parents can't help along the way. My son still calls me for plenty of advice. My daughter still calls me for plenty of advice. Even though they're in their mid-30s, I still get lots of calls from them as to, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And I'm happy to help them. But I succeeded as a father. Because my kids are adults, and they live on their own, and they make their own decisions. Both of my children are married, so guess what? They have their own. My daughter has a husband. Guess what? She's his problem now. And he willingly took on that role. Okay? And I asked him specifically, are you sure? When he called and asked for her hand, I waited for a few seconds and was thinking it over and he went are you still there and i went you have met my daughter haven't you so he knew what he was getting into my son the same way he has a wife he has now a responsibility for her to lead and guide her 
that's what parents are to do. So we are going to provoke our children. The, the point that Paul was making here is don't provoke them to the place they become discouraged, where they now they don't have, see, the opposite of discourage is encouraged, right? So if you discourage someone, you're taking away their motivation to go do something positive. What's the one positive thing you want them to do? Become a man or a woman and go out and be an adult. Okay. So if you discourage them, you're pulling back that sense of them getting to that place. So don't do, don't place ex, uh, expectations upon your children that would discourage them from being those things. Encourage them, even if at times you have to provoke them, quote unquote, but encourage them rather than discourage them. My wife and I have a, an ex- excellent example of this in our own lives. My daughter, who was about 23, I believe, at the time, had decided she didn't want to go to Bethel anymore, so she went to Virginia. She followed her now husband out there. It wasn't husband then. Uh, followed him out there in order to go live out there. And, and Daddy was still paying for a number of things, like cell phones and car insurance and all those sorts of things. And... And dad was getting a knot in his stomach that would grow every time the phone rang and it was her on the other end. And it was like, I need this, I need you to help me with this, and why aren't you doing this, and why aren't you doing that? And so one day I just sat down with dad and said, okay, look, we're done. Here's what we're going to do. When she calls, the next time it's going to be the end of it. So she called. Didn't take long. And I told her, I said, look, you want to be an adult? You want me to treat you like an adult? I'm going to treat you like an adult. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to pay your cell phone bill anymore. I'm not paying your car insurance bill anymore. I'm not paying for this or that or the other thing. You're on your own. And um, she was not a happy camper with that. And I must confess, I felt guilty, but I knew it was right. I provoked her. I did not provoke her to discouragement, however. I encouraged her. This was a matter of loving encouragement. It's time for you to be an adult. She hung up the phone, and she sat there in a chair, and she wept. She used a few curse words. And then she got up and said, you know what? i got to go live my life. And she did. And now she tells me, that was the best thing that you ever did. Thank you for doing that. Okay? That's the difference between provoking to encouragement and provoking to discouragement. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you have to look your kid in the face and say, "Uh, you need to go this way, go there, be an adult. But the goal is to encourage. Again, the father is being asked to put on the new self, isn't he? To put away malice and, and, and anger and that dictatorial attitude over his children, and to put on the nature of Christ, who comes, yes, at times with a rod, to discipline his own, right? The Son comes at times by his Spirit to discipline us, because we have strayed. But he doesn't do it out of malice. He does it to encourage us to move forward, to move away from those things. And so we put on Christ. Again, you'll notice how all of these are connecting back to this one who came in the flesh. So, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Or the better way to say that would be fathers, provoke your children to encouragement. Help them to get where they need to go. 
And then he comes to the bond servant. Now, all of verses 22 to 4, uh, I'm sorry, 24, all of verses 3, 22 to 25, the end of the chapter, are written to the bond servant. Okay? Now, that word bond servant in verse 22 is a very clear word. All right? It's a very clear word. It's the word doulos. It's the word for slave. Okay? One of the, one of the biggest complaints that I have about the ESV is it does not tra- translate that word consistently. If you're going to use it as slave in one place, use it as slave in another. Why are you not calling it slave here? There's no reason not to. Okay, It's the word. It's what the word means. There's little nuance in it, with the exception of the fact that there were, in, the Roman, in Roman times, in the first century, there were different types of slaves. But they were all considered slaves. You could be a financial slave in the sense that you had voluntarily placed yourself under a master for a financial reason. Even Jesus himself used parables of such men who did that. They placed themselves willingly under another because they had a financial problem. Remember the man that owed you know, 10 million talents and he was forgiven and then he goes out and chokes the guy that owed him 10 bucks? Okay, that's a picture of a man who was a financial slave. They were quite common in the first century. A person who placed themselves under another as a bondservant in order to work off a debt. That's quite common. Another kind, of course, were slaves that were taken by virtue of war, taken as captives. Um, Now, this wouldn't necessarily fall into the category of chattel slavery. That's a third category. But this middle category would be people who were taken captive from other nations and brought in as slaves because they were one in war and battle. Very often they would be come, by virtue of being foreigners, they would come to be household servants and slaves. They were not considered chattel in the sense that they were bought and sold. Sometimes they were. But generally speaking, such were treated as those who were won by conquest and thus brought in. The third category is chattel slavery, which is the common form found here in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? Chattel slavery was the purchase and movement of human beings as property. But the first two categories, as I mentioned, were not necessarily treating people as property. They were often treated quite well, in fact. Now, another thing to keep in mind, contrary to everything you've ever heard about chattel slavery in the United States, there were many instances of slaves in the antebellum South that were treated well. In in fact, treated even better than others in many ways. In fact, what is not so well known amongst many Protestants, particularly amongst Baptists, is that many men who were slaves were elders in Baptist churches and worked right alongside their masters as elders in those churches. True, when they left the building, they were no longer you know, in that relationship, they had a master-slave relationship. But there were well-known instances, and quite a few of them, in which there were equality, if you will, of role in the church, regardless of skin color, regardless of background. So in other words, what I say through all of that is, look, any discussion about slavery is a nuanced discussion, okay? It can't be a monolithic kind of thing. 
there are still massive numbers of people on this planet today that are slaves. And I'm not talking about black people being owned by white people. I'm talking about Indian people owning other Indian people. The caste system in India is a form of slavery. No one ever talks about it, though, because, well, it's, you know, it's not the right kind. No, it's still a form of bond servant. It's still a do-loss. The other thing to keep in mind that I have you to, whenever you have a discussion about slavery from Scripture, is the Apostle Paul has this nagging tendency to call himself one. And I say nagging because it has a tendency to throw a wrench into all the discussions about slavery in the New Testament. Because he calls himself a doulos all the time. He calls himself a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of times in the openings of his writings, he uses that phrase to describe himself. In Colossians, he just calls himself an apostle. But in other places, he uses this word, a bondservant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he recognizes that when you come to Christ, you are now owned by Christ. He has purchased you. He has purchased you from the slave market of sin. He has purchased you out of the slave market of sin, which led only to death, to bring you into his marvelous kingdom. So he's purchased you out. But Paul saw himself as a slave to Christ. Now, obviously, any slave to Christ is to be a slave to the most magnanimous master that ever lived, right? The most loving, perfect master you could ever have. But a master nonetheless. Because the implication by Paul is, and using that word, I no longer control my own life. It's controlled by someone else. And that is a fundamental thinking when it comes to what it means to be a Christian. We must recognize that when we come to Christ, we are not coming simply as buddies, as though Jesus is my pal, my friend, uh, you know, he just kind of helps me, right? No, no. When we come to Christ, we are submitting ourselves to his absolute authority over all things. He is Lord. That word Lord means master. Kyrios in the Greek means master. Unequivocal ownership and mastery is the point of Kyrios. In fact, very often the word Kyrios in the New Testament is equated with the name of God himself. It's lordship to the point of divine lordship. And so when we come to Christ, we are placing ourselves under him. I mean, Jesus himself looked at his disciples and says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? It's an oxymoron. I'm either Lord or I'm not. I'm either your absolute master in which I am the one in charge of your life or I'm not. There's no middle ground. There's no kind of, well, Jesus is Lord when I want him to be. Right? That's kind of like saying God is sovereign only up to a point. Right? It's oxymoronic. <clears throat> to be a slave of Christ is to be someone who has been bought and paid for by Christ. He owns us. And when he commands us, we don't ask why. We do. When he says, when he says do this, do this. We do it. Right? Now, I realize, <laughs> I realize, I, I, I'm, you, you all understand what I'm saying, I'm sure, because we've, you know, we, we come out of a, theo a theological system that embraces this idea. But listen, the vast majority of evangelicals do not. They do not come under this thinking. No, no, they don't think of Jesus as the absolute master of their life. 
They see Jesus as, well, a Savior that has saved me, and so I'll go to him when I die, but I'm free now to go and continue to live my own life. And they even go so far, if we're going to just be honest about it, they even go so far as believing that their destiny was originally in their hands to begin with. As though he's not really Lord of anything. I'm Lord until I make him my Savior. You know, I I remember very distinctly the arguments that John MacArthur had with the fundamentalists back in the 80s. You remember the discussions? The anti-lordship kind of theology that was present and that he was fighting back against because they would say, look, if, if, if you have to make Jesus Lord of your life in order to be saved, then you're adding to his work, which is baloney. It doesn't make any sense. That's preposterous on its face. No. To come to faith in Christ is to make him Lord. You are Lord. I'm not. You are. Okay, what would you have me to do? That's an obvious point. So Paul takes that thinking, I believe, Paul takes that thinking into these verses, and he gives a lengthy discussion. Notice that he gives three whole verses to this particular position, and he does the same thing in Ephesians, by the way, although the the part about husbands is the longest part of the household rules in Ephesians. But in this particular one, he almost verbatim repeats what he wrote in Ephesians 5. If you go back and look at Ephesians 5, you'll see it's almost identical to this. The wording's slightly different and out of order, but it's the same basic principles. Bond service, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, don't do this just to make other people think that you're doing it well. Do it well. Do it to the best of your ability. Serve your master in the way you're supposed to, not just on the outward, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, I think that phrase is the kicker because what he is saying, I think, is just as we who are Christians fear the Lord, I mean, not in the sense of trembling, but we look upon him as master. We look upon him as the one who leads us, the one who is our absolute authority. We are, as bondservants, work for your master, fearing the Lord. Because here's what he would have you to do. In your station, do your job, do it well. In his station, he did his job, he did it well, didn't he? He didn't do it second hand, he didn't do it second rate. When his father said, go, take on flesh, live righteously under the law, give yourself over to the wickedness of men to die, he said, yes, I'll do that. And he did. And he did it perfectly, didn't he? He never resisted his father's will. I've not come to do my will, but he who sent me, right? So he understood the concept of obedience. So the the bond servant working for somebody should do this. Verse 22, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay, verse 23 is simply a repetition of the previous verse, but he says it again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Who? The Lord. You're not serving the Master, you're serving the Lord. So your obedience to Him is to be such that it is representative of your obedience to Christ. So he's writing to Christian slaves and saying, look, I don't know what your station in life is. I don't know how you got into the position that you are. Whether you're a chattel slave, 
whether you're a military conquest or whether you're someone who voluntarily submitted yourself to slavery. I don't know which position you're in, but here's what I do know. Do it faithfully as unto the Lord. I think the reason why this is so long, by the way, is because this could be, we could all step back and say, you know what? These verses apply to every Christian that's ever been born. Do the work that Christ gives you to do. Obey whatever it is the Lord has commanded you to do in everything. Don't do it by way of, of eye service and people pleasers, right? Don't just go through the motions of doing these things in order to convince others that you're a Christian. Uh-uh. Serve Christ with full sincerity as you fear him. So he's simply applying it to bond service, but you could say he's applying it to all of us, right? Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance. Look, you may be stuck in this situation for the rest of your life. You will notice that Paul does not attempt anywhere in his writings to overthrow slavery. Nowhere. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is slavery ever called a sin. So he doesn't attempt in any way to change the reality of people's lives. Why? Because they're ordained by God. So Paul says, all right, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your reality is. I don't know what kind of slave you are. I don't know what kind of master you have. But here's what I do know. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are to work as a man serving the Lord. Now look, we don't really have modern-day slaves here, although I imagine sometimes when you look at your boss, you'd think of him like you're a slave, right? You have a boss. Jose has the worst boss to work for. So here's the thing. The bottom line is, we could apply this to the employee-employer relationship, right? Work for your employer in the same way that you are to work for Christ. Do it with sincerity. Do it heartily as for the Lord, not for men. And know that whatever station the Lord has you in, whether you are a slave or an employee or in some way responsible to someone else, do it faithfully unto Christ. Remember a little while ago I told you I could apply that thing about fathers to elders? Remember? I could apply these passages to elders too. You've been given the responsibility to lead a church. Do it as though you're fearing the Lord, right? doesn't matter what position you're in. doesn't matter what kind of role the Lord has you in. That's not the point. We often get lost in that conversation. Well, Jesus, what about slavery? And what about this? And what about that? How about if we just say, wait a minute, whatever the Lord has ordained for your circumstances, why don't you do whatever it is he's called you to do in the midst of that to the best of your ability and demonstrate that you belong to Christ? Show that you are submitted to Christ by how well you do your earthly job. And then verse 25, some of you found it interesting, my interpretation of verse 25. We talked about this a little bit last week after we ended. Paul writes this, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Most people, I think, read that verse as though it's talking to the master. As though the master, I'm sorry, it's talking to the slave. As though the, Paul is writing to say, listen, if you've done wrong... As a, as a slave, if you've done wrong, you're going to be paid back for the wrong that you've done, and there's no partiality. Now, there's no doubt that's true. But I think contextually, exegetically, what Paul is actually saying is, listen, you might be in a situation where you are under the boot of a man 
who is wicked. And he may wrong you. He may treat you poorly. He may cheat you. He may not give you what you rightly deserve. But listen, leave it to the Lord to take care of on the day of judgment. That, I think, is the proper interpretation of that verse. True, I think Paul would be saying, listen, don't do what is wrong, right, as a slave. Don't do what is wrong because you will be paid back for the wrong that you've done and there will be no partiality in that judgment because when Christ judges, everything is going to be brought to the surface. It's going to be a perfect judgment. But I think Paul is not speaking to the slaveholder in that way. I think he's speaking to the slave. He's not speaking to the slave, I mean, in that way. He's saying, listen, I know your circumstances may be miserable, horrible, wicked even. But do this work and wait for the Lord to judge. Serve to the best of your ability in the midst of your situation, whatever it might be. In, in, In many ways, that's precisely what Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus. Treat him like a brother. Treat him like a brother. Give to him what he rightly deserves as your brother in Christ. But he doesn't say to Philemon, release him. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say set him free. He only says do what is right. That could imply set him free. But I'm inclined to believe that he's saying to Philemon, look, Onesimus does owe you. He does. And you have the right to do with Onesimus as you will because he is your slave. But you are to do what is right. To Onesimus, he would write these words. If Philemon treats you poorly, well, the Lord will take care of that. Okay? See, see, I think this is where we're going. Because I don't think he turns to masters until the next verse. Which he does. He says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, he doesn't even have to say any more than that. It's obvious, isn't it? In fact, you might say that's probably the most obvious verse in this entire section. If you are the owner of someone who works for you, a slave, a bondservant of some sort, if you are a Christian, your obvious responsibility is to treat them in the same way that you would expect to be treated by your master in heaven. It's that simple. It doesn't take much more than that, does it, for him to go here. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, you have a master. Live like him. Put on the new self. Okay? You used to be a master who was cruel. You used to be a master who was dictatorial. You used to be a master who was hateful and wicked. But now you've been converted by the Spirit of the living God into someone who knows what it means to serve a master. Okay? You should express the same kind of mastery over someone that Christ extended to you. Or in other words, show passion. I'm sorry, compassion and forgiveness and kindness. The things he speaks of earlier, right? So you'll see what Paul's done here. Very simply. He's taken all of these ideas of the new self and all of what it means to put off the old, put on the new, just as Christ has come and Christ is the master. So now, in whatever role you have, live out that new self in that way. If you're a wife, live out that new self, submissive to a husband, 
If you're a husband, live out that new self as one who takes care of, protects, guides, loves your wife. If you're a child and you have that new nature, then put on the new self, which is to submit yourself and honor your parents. If you're a father, put on that new self to encourage your child and bring him up in the nurture and admonition. If you're a slave and you're a new creature in Christ, live like Christ did. And if you're a master, put on that new self and treat your slaves with that new nature. This is radical thinking in a way. Because although it's deeply pragmatic, it's fundamentally theological. Dare I say it's Christological. Because it comes from Christ. Christ submitted himself to his father, carried out his father's will, was obedient even unto death, death on a cross, and the father exalted him back to his place of being the Lord of heaven and earth, giving to him the name above all names. We then are brought by Christ. And we also, in whatever role we have, the more specific one being that we are all slaves of Christ, we are to live as he did. We are to wear that nature, that new self, just as he did. So Paul is very pragmatic, as I said, very specifically pragmatic here in taking the new self and applying it to us. This, my friends, is the essence of discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to grow up in these things. We are to help each other to do that. That's what the church is all about, to help each other to be all of these things, to exhort one another and to encourage one another and to rebuke one another when necessary, and even if necessary, even to discipline one another until we are all reach maturity. You can almost hear Paul's Ephesians 4 behind these words. The church has been given these various roles to help all of us to mature. And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. So gentlemen, let's go out and be the kinds of fathers that obey the Lord. Let's be husbands that imitate Christ. Let's be masters, however that might mean in our lives, as though we are following Christ. And he will be pleased and glorified 